Well, the theaters might be closed, but we're certainly seeing some theater in Columbus with what's going on in the legislature. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast from Cleveland.com. I'm Cleveland.com editor Chris Quinn with my colleagues, Laura Johnston, Chris Marnowski, and Jane Cahoon. We're having fun with some of the stuff going on in Columbus, huh? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Considering there was no DeWine briefing yesterday, I had one of the busiest days I've had in a while. Well, let, let's let's get to it and talk about my favorite story from yesterday. <laughs> How did the Ohio Senate give a smackdown to Ohio House Speaker Larry Householder and his attempts to neutralize Health Director Dr. Amy Acton? This has been an odd one. Amy Acton is looked upon as a hero for the rest of the nation. We keep seeing profiles as other national media suddenly discover her. But here at home, we have some Republicans in the state house that really want to shut her down, even though she's kept us all safe. Jane Cahoon, what happened yesterday to, to those House Republicans? Well, just a little background here. As, as you know, Speaker Householder did not like Dr. Acton's health orders one bit. He didn't see the need for shutting down anything, basically. So his chamber had taken this Senate bill whose original intent was to limit regulations on businesses and they amended it to to limit Dr. Acton's power by uh, it, uh, limiting health orders to 14 days um, unless they had a legislative uh, panel approve it to go longer. Yeah, basically, so, it was stripping the executive branch's power to to keep people safe. They wanted to take that into the a joint legislative committee, right? Right. I think it was like 10 people, you know, would would. Uh, Lawmakers, you know, get to make this right. decision. Not health officials. Right, not, right, right. Not doctors, not epidemiologists. So since the House made those changes, the, the bill went back to the Senate for concurrence, and they voted unanimously Wednesday uh, against concurrence, and that effectively blocked the plan and sent the bill to a conference committee with members from both chambers. So, so, but I also was struck by the, the numbers in the vote. I mean, if it's just a basic you know, majority rules vote. It's not such a smackdown, but this was unanimous. This was like Larry Householder, shut the hell up. <laughs> well, that is true, but that is not to say that the Senate disagrees with reining in Dr. Acton's power. They actually have a bill of their own designed to do just that. But their leader, Senate President Larry Abhoff, feels that this issue should be thoroughly vetted and, and they should have hearings to air the whole thing out instead of just sticking it into an unrelated bill and, and rushing it through. I should also mention that the, the, the bill that they failed to concur on, uh, Governor Mike DeWine said he was going to veto that anyway. Yeah, I mean, and they look, the Senate does seem to be saying they want to do this right. They want to have people testify in favor of her powers they want to hear from people who believe they should be curtailed. And and look, you could make an argument that this the health department powers came from a crisis more than a century ago with the, the 1918 pandemic. And you could argue that the health department does seem to have outsized powers for what what is needed here, that the health department might be better off in an advisory role to the executive branch. We've talked locally about the Cuyahoga Board of Health. When this all started, they were being absolutely ridiculous about not providing data. And they weren't answerable to anybody because you don't elect them and you, you know, there was no way to deal with it. They ended up going in the opposite direction and they've been tremendously helpful with data. 
in the latter half of this thing, but it did raise questions about why does an unelected health board have this power? Why wouldn't you have the health board be advisory to the elected officials? So, you know, what the Senate wants to do is a legitimate exercise of the legislature. What the House wanted to do was not. (laughs) I mean, squeezing it into another bill, jamming it to the governor in the middle of the pandemic, jamming it to Amy Acton. And it's just not right. It's not good public policy. And it's kind of a reversal of how Larry Householder had had been operating as speaker. He had a reputation for being a heavy-handed monster. He came in, he made peace with the Democrats, he was doing things right. But man, that's all gone out the window. This was like the old-fashioned Larry Householder. <laughs> yes, it was. Okay, it's this week in the CLE. Is my health club opening earlier than Ohio Governor Mike DeWine said it could? The health clubs are supposed to open on the 26th, but we have a ruling in a court case that says differently. Laura Johnston, who was the judge that made that ruling and what's at stake? So this was a Lake County Common Pleas judge named Eugene A. Lucci. So you'll have to check with your health club on when they're opening. Mine isn't going to open till June 1st, but you definitely have some cover if you're a gym owner who wants to reopen before the official restart date the state gave on May 26th. That's Tuesday. Um, He said that Amy Acton, the health director, had exceeded her legal authority in ordering the businesses closed since mid-March. And he actually went even more sweeping in his ruling. He said the director has no statutory authority to close all businesses, including the plaintiff's gym. She acted this, impermissibly arbitrary. It yeah, seems so Sorry. bogus. <laughs> I mean, you got, you, got, you got 30 health clubs choosing a Lake County courtroom to go to. I mean, it's just this, they, it looks like they targeted a judge. The judge, knowing that this is pretty much meaningless because they're opening in six days, does the grandstanding, makes the sweeping ruling. But it, it puts Mike DeWine and, and Attorney General Dave Yost in a bind. If they don't appeal this, even though it has no practical effect, this stands as somewhat of a precedent. I mean, another judge in another county could rule differently, but they could use it. So, Jane Cahoon, do you expect we'll see an appeal of this just so that the state can maintain its authority? I sort of think so. I mean, that's just my hunch. But, you know, they need to preserve the the rules that the gyms need to live by. So I don't know if the gyms are going to use this ruling to say, you know, we also don't have to follow all the rules that were, were put out by the health department for the reopening. So I would think they do have something at stake here to preserve. Although DeWine spokesman Dan Tierney very quickly said there's very specific rules they have to follow. And right. look, most members of the public will want them to follow those rules. I mean, th- th- those rules are meant to keep Laura Johnston when she returns on June 1st <laughs> from getting coronavirus. And so, you know, right. to flout those rules in some political statement doesn't seem like people would want to go back to those gyms. Right. It's just, my it's just- experience is similar to Laura's where I got a note from my gym saying they are not going to open on the designated date, they're still reviewing it. They want to they wanna keep people safe, and they don't think they can meet the social distancing guidelines right now. Well, you know, turning off every other machine or pulling it out, I mean, those things are all lined up next to each other. It's going to require a lot of um, changing of things around, kind of like what we saw at bars and restaurants with the plexiglass dividers and things. Uh, it'll, it'll be interesting to see. It just it was one of those rulings that you see and think, all right, we're what six days away. That's, What's the point? Yeah, it's really weird because it's not like they challenged this in March. Like this was a pretty recent 
lawsuit that got filed. So I, I don't really understand. I mean, I guess it's all they're proving a point, correct? Making a point. I don't know if they've proved it yet. We'll have to wait for the appeal. <laughs> I mean, for all intents and purposes, the, the Ohio shutdown is over. You, you still can't be in big crowds, but they, they've lifted it all. And so I, I just was surprised. The judge could easily have said, this is moot. We no longer have to think about it. Instead, he writes this sweeping statement that the health director has no powers, which really isn't true. The health director has a lot of powers. Go ahead, Chris Ronowski. Um, I, I mean, part of this might also be because we we do. I mean, the governor has said, you know, if cases go up, we are we may have to pull back and, and create more limitations. So, you know, the fact that they didn't do this back in March, you know, they may be looking forward to a period where, you know, more rules and more limitations sort of start to creep back into our daily lives. So, you know, this this may be about what's going on now, but it also might be looking forward to what happens in the future. That's a good point, especially given the news coming out of China that they seem to be preparing for a big second surge. So. Good point. This week in the CLE. What do the latest projections show for how coronavirus cases will increase as Ohio fully reopens everything that has been closed? We've talked a good bit about projections. We talked about the Metro Health projections last week. Chris Warnowski, Evan McDonald did a deep dive on what we might be seeing in the month ahead. What might we be seeing? Well, uh, I think we're going to start seeing a lot of people being in touch with each other again after a long period of time. And with that, we're going to see more cases uh, of the coronavirus. I think, you know, I think, you know, I don't know that you needed a bunch of studies to dictate that, you know, once you reopen the world, uh, people are going to start hanging out again and and probably uh, spitting and talking <laughs> over each other and, and, and passing along the coronavirus to each other again. So, um but, but I, Evan Evan was looking specifically at the Washington University study. Which, you know, they've done a lot of work over the the past three months, and he talked to some of the the people putting the projections together, and they were pretty specific that that you know we could go from whatever it is five hundred cases a day in the state now to something significantly higher. Right. We're he he talked to people from Pittsburgh, from Washington, from and Akron Buteros, and. And and basically the the synopsis of his story, which is good, and people should actually go and read the whole thing. It's great. They're, we're operating under this thing what they call balance risk. So so what they're saying now is okay, we we've we've flattened the curve enough where we believe that by opening up the state, we're not going to overwhelm our hospital system to the point of you know. I mean, what they're saying basically is like, look, people are going to get sick. But we have the capacity to deal with it now that, you know, we're not in this hot, hot time of, of just a huge surge of people getting really ill. And so when people get sick, you know, they'll be able to actually go to the hospital, get, you know, get tested at the hospital if they're symptomatic. And and there's room in the ICU if, you know, they need to go there for a more, you know, extensive treatment. And. And so, but, but, you know, again, all of these studies still have a big question mark in it because so much of the research is patchy. You know, I mean, the, the, the United States, we dealt with this in such a patchwork way that, you know, we're actually in a period now where like a lot of these public health experts are like, okay, we're going to, we're going to see what happens. And, and, and what happens over the next four to eight weeks is probably going to determine, you know, 
whether or not there's going to have to be some more additional restrictions added or if if we're going to be in the clear. It's not like we have unlimited capacity in our ICUs. I mean, they've been at 70% capacity or 65% capacity. That's not that's not far from being full. I mean, there's a Alabama has an area now that I guess is is very seriously overrun. Uh, it wouldn't take much of a spread to start stressing our hospitals again. That's why I guess we're all going to be watching this so closely. Right. And, and it's, you know, and look, I, I think they factor in the, the significant amount of deaths that are happening in nursing homes. So, you know, a lot of this isn't happening in, in the general public. So, you know, if this isn't, you know, when people die in a nursing home, it's not the result of people bumping into each other at, you know, at a shopping center. It's, you know, it's tragic, but it's all, you know, and, and that's the thing is it, is that we're sort of like, we're making these decisions about, you know, what, what is acceptable, what is an acceptable level of illness and what is it? But so much of it is really just like, wait and see. And, yeah, and well, we will. Next, next two months will be interesting. Also, whether we have another surge, you're listening to this week in the CLE. Can people trying to put questions on the November ballot in Ohio, collect their signatures online for the first time? Jan Cahoon, the the decision, the news that came yesterday, I can't imagine that it's going to stand. Take us through it. Yes, I I don't think we've heard the final word on this. A a federal judge this week ordered Ohio officials to allow state-issue campaigns to collect the signatures they need to make the ballot electronically. This was a request from backers of two campaigns. One was um, an attempt to raise the minimum wage eventually to to $13 an hour, and the other is an effort to expand voting access in Ohio. They were able to successfully argue that the coronavirus pandemic made it just about impossible for them to collect the signatures in person. So they proposed doing it online and using the last four digits of voters' social security numbers for verification. And um, the judge also extended the deadline, so they have until the end of July to collect these signatures. What 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 baffles me about this is that the Ohio Constitution is not vague at all about what it takes to put something on the ballot. Many people argue it's too easy to put something on the ballot under the the existing rules, but it's really specific. And there's nothing that says <laughs> you can collect signatures online. I mean that right. that really is. And it's not the legislature. This is the state constitution. I, I just, I didn't, I didn't think a judge would make this ruling. I can't imagine an appellate court or the U.S. Supreme Court would do that because it just subverts the constitution of Ohio. You're I, right. You're right. There, I mean, there are a couple of reasons why why this is likely to not stand. And one is, as you said, the constitution specifically says that signatures shall be written in ink and witnessed by a circulator. Right. And the uh, court that would hear an appeal of this, the, the Sixth Circuit, has already ruled in a Michigan case that judges can't tell the state how to change its rules. So you got to believe they're going to find a receptive audience there when they appeal that. And, and then last is another factor that, you know, it's still a really high bar for them to meet. They need nearly half a million signatures in the next two months. And even electronically, it's kind of hard to imagine they're going to be able to do that. Well, the other the other problem they have is that, you know, they're arguing the pandemic is has put a 
put a block in our plants. Well, the pandemic's put a block in a lot of plants. I mean, it's, <laughs> and and no, nothing they're doing it's is life or death urgency. It's very easy for the courts to say, do it next year. There's, you know, what's the rush? It's not, it's not going to hurt people if this gets delayed till next May or next November. So I, I we'll see. I just, I can't imagine that this won't get stopped almost. I bet Dave Yost is, is already going to be in court appealing this to stop. This oh yeah. From, he's tweeted about it. You know, he's, he's very clear about that. And and really, federal judges should not have the ability to just completely subvert the Constitution, which which Ohioans have voted on. So, OK, we'll see. It's this week in the CLE. Now that restaurants are reopening, will they lose the ability to sell me to-go cocktails? Mike DeWine opened the door to sell to-go cocktails to help restaurants in the middle of the, the pandemic and the shutdown. And now we have a development that might make that permanent. Laura Johnston, what is it? So some Ohio lawmakers want to make this change permanent. And House Bill 666 allows bars, restaurants, small breweries, micro distilleries, wineries to sell drinks in covered cups or alcoholic beverages such as wine in their original sealed containers for customers to drink away from the premises. This means you could get your margarita to go. DoorDash or Grubhub would be allowed allowed to deliver drinks if they register with the state liquor authorities. And they have to... to check that you're 21 or older when you order, I think. So I'm not sure how Grubhub and DoorDash is exactly going to work with that. They do have to verify that you're you're 21 or older when they deliver it to you? Somehow they have to verify, yes. And the DoorDash and Grubhub have to be registered with the state. So I don't know if they just check your ID when they drop it off or if there's some kind of online system that like has registered you know, 21 and over. I don't know how that's exactly going to work. I was going to say one weird thing is there's allows on-site drinking in parking lots as well as outdoor areas, quote, immediately adjacent to the premises, so long as a property owner gives written consent. So are people going to drive to the restaurant, get their takeout, drink like on the tailgate of their their minivan or something? And then this parking lot thing seems weird. Could I jump in here for a second? This is Shane Cahoon. One funny thing, Laura, you mentioned the House Bill 666. When Jeremy Pelzer wrote the story, it was House Bill. He called it the devilishly named yeah. House Bill 666. They've since changed the bill number to no. nine. No. Yes. Have they yes. really? They have. <laughs> I think they they saw a little problem there with that. So, so I, I just thought that was really funny. <laughs> wow. They're jumping on the parking lot part. I don't wow. Know. They don't want to have a bill about drinking with the sign of the devil. <laughs> wow. Whatever happened to the separation of church? I don't know. That, that made a kind of a cooler bill to me. I don't, I don't know about yeah. anything else. All right. It's this week in the CLE. Were overdose deaths an unintended consequence of the lifting of many of the coronavirus shutdown orders? Cuyahoga County's medical examiner had some dire news this week as a result of what lifting of the shutdown orders. Chris Warnowski, what did he have to say? Right. So uh, Cuyahoga County medical examiner Tom Gilson um, spoke with Adam Faris uh, a couple of days ago after he, he sent out an alert that in the first 48 hours after the Ohio government eased restrictions, nine people died of suspected overdoses. So that would be between late Saturday and late Monday. And he's, he, it's, it's difficult to say if, if this is a actual connection, but there is some, you know, some 
some things that lead him to believe that there is is a connection between the two things that people were going out to bars back out to social gatherings hanging out with friends and doing things you do when you go out and you hang out with friends at bars and restaurants so um he he he's he's put you know there there were also some concerns that um or at least some some evidence that you know that during the the lockdown as there was some restriction in trade and shipping and stuff like that 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 the normal channels in which the United States gets drugs imported to it through black market through the black market had kind of shut down. So that the, there wasn't an availability of drugs either. So, um, but this is, this is a bad statistic. And I think we're, you know, we're going to keep, keep watching this. And I think Gilson who has, has been a, a pretty good resource in, and a, a really sort of well-read person on this subject matter is going to continue to track as we continue to open the state up more. So, so what is it that there was just pent up demand by addicts that hadn't been able to get a fix for a while? Part of it is at least, you know, again, he's theorizing here. There's, there's, you know, this is this, right. It could just is, be coincidence right. here. I mean, it could be a coincidence, but you know, he's saying that, you know, that, you know, people who are returning to using drugs are doing so with a lower tolerance, you know, and, and that while people were locked down there, you know, they, they were avoiding, you know, doing things like this, but, you know, it's weird because we did hear kind of both sides of this. There was a concern early on that when people were sitting at home and people were stressed out, that people were going to do more drugs. And, and I don't know that that theory panned out either. So it's, it's, you know, we're going to look into this, I think, a little more as, you know, again, as as we get a larger sort of sampling of data, um, you know, but it's OK. You know, we're starting to see more heroin and stuff come back and, and right. you know, it's kind of distressing. OK, something to keep track of. We'll uh, we'll have to report back on it in another few weeks it's this week in the CLE. After all the work Governor Mike DeWine did to reduce the prison population, why are prisons again accepting new prisoners? This was kind of surprising, Jane. There was a rush to reduce the population in prisons so that they wouldn't be so close together and at risk of getting the coronavirus. Now we're going to build the population back up? Well, yes. Uh, This decision is based on the fact that courts around Ohio are reopening and they're again sentencing people to prison time. So they say they got to reopen. So it's just the, the the state has to conduct business. Part of the business is prosecuting criminals, and some of those criminals need to do hard time. Right. Now, they do stress that they're, they're taking precautions on this. They're only going to accept 50 new inmates a day, and every incoming inmate is going to be tested when they first enter the system. They're going to be quarantined for, quarantined for 14 days, and they're going to have to remain at a reception facility for at least 35 days before they're transferred to one of the prisons, and this is male inmates. There's still a freeze on new female inmates. You got to imagine that if you were a a um, somebody that has just been convicted of a crime, and you were going to be sent to the Marion Correctional Facility, and you were of an age where you're vulnerable, you'd be scared to death. I mean, this is you know you could this could be a death sentence for some of these folks because the prisons have been such hotbeds of the coronavirus. It's a little surprising. Did they were they specific at all about saying that the prisons that have had the worst problems are are not going to be the ones where people go, or were they not specific? I don't know that they said that. They they did say they think the worst is behind them in at the Marion prison, but 
now they're dealing with this outbreak at the um, the Belmont prison. So I, I would doubt that they would transfer inmates to the ones that are really having the outbreaks. But what do I know? I don't yeah, know. Yeah, we're going to have to watch that because the, the, I mean, these were serious hotbeds of it. I mean, the Marion Correctional Facility was covered by the, the nation's media because it was the most concentrated place with cases. So Yeah, and civil liberties folks are really not happy about this, and they call the whole thing a failure of leadership, you know, that we still have the, these overcrowded prisons, and it's been a problem for years. Yeah, it's a, I, I, th- th- this one surprised me. I thought that they'd probably sit tight for a little while longer, but I guess not. It's this week in the CLE. Did people who filed for unemployment in Ohio have their data breached in the state's embattled computer system? There's just no good news coming out of the unemployment <laughs> system in Ohio. It's a it's a nightmare. We hear from people every day that can't get through. Every day almost we see John Houston trying to explain why it's not quite as bad as we think it is. And now this, Jane, what what's the latest? Yes, we like we really needed another problem with this system. The Department of Job and Family Services sent an email Wednesday to, to people who had filed for the pandemic unemployment assistance and told them that two dozen claimants mistakenly had access to other claimants' personal data, and that included names, social security numbers, addresses, and their award totals. Uh, Deloitte Consulting, which is the firm that was administering the these additional payments notified the state over the weekend but they said that once they found out about it they had it corrected you know within an hour or so and and they're offering identity protection you know for 12 months for free for for anybody potentially affected but so i i guess this is good news (laughs) <laughs> for the people that could not get through the system to put in their personal data because it's not it's not been breached. So I'm sure that's how John Houston will spin it. You but know, these hey. two dozen people were probably like, whoa, now I really have access. I can read everybody else's. It's, stuff it, too. it's just it's uh, it's, you know, Chris Warnowski has said in the past, we ought to take a deep look at the people who put this system together because it's just not working. And this is more evidence of it. We ought to really look at how they awarded these contracts and 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 who is responsible for this breakdown because it's it's the if you had to pick the single biggest piece of bad news out of how Ohio has dealt with this, the unemployment system is probably it because it's caused agony for no end of people. Totally agree. Yours truly yeah. included. <laughs> yeah. you're, you're talking to two people who have already had a lot of problems with it. I will terrible. say terrible absolutely just to, terrible just to update people I, I actually finally got my payment which was great and um, I have spoken to some folks who uh, some friends of mine who work in um, the service industry and some contractor independent contractors who are are starting to get paid uh, one of my friends who said he didn't get paid for weeks like weeks 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 uh, said he got all of his at once. So he said he felt like a thousand times better now that, you know, that anxiety has loosened up. But, but well, we know, should uh, say, we should say if that, if that happened, that is what John Houston said would happen. He kept right. telling people, you will get the retroactive pay. He said it over and over again. And if that happened, then the state is making good on John Houston's promise. So, right. And, and yeah, but it's, but again, I think we've, we've hammered this home enough that, you know, it's, 
it's they they just because we're coming to the end of this and they're they're you know going to start booting people off these roles. It's not a time to just say okay, we can ignore this system again. They states including ours really really need to make sure that if and when something like this happens in the future, it's prepared to deal with it again because this was a, it was ridiculous and unacceptable. And as as a taxpayer of the state, I it's it's infuriating that you know it, it was it was such a failure for so many people who were desperate just to get by. Well, and as you both know, there's nothing more frustrating than going through a whole computerized form <laughs> and then getting a screen saying error. You have to call us, and then you can't. I mean, the whole. And the, I mean, and the nightmare was repeated over and over again. You heard Randy Ludlow of the Dispatch describing it. It's just the frustration right. people felt. And I started to worry that because journalists were talking about it so much that the state might have started focusing just on journals. So it's good to hear your friends in the service <laughs> industry are getting paid and they yeah. weren't just trying to silence their loudest critics. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Okay, well, we had a nightmare of uh, technical difficulties today. I can't wait to hear how this sounds when it's all wrapped up. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Laura, who has been bounced off of this. And thanks, Chris. <laughs> thanks to everybody for listening. Hi, <laughs> we believe this week in the CLE will return tomorrow, barring additional technical difficulties. <laughs> <laughs>